Hi, I'm Will Hannafin, and welcome to episode three of this summer series of Sure It Was Better. I'm joined by my esteemed panel of Pauline McGlynn, Jules Call, and Emer McLeisett as they delved through eight decades of the RTE archives to see if it was better or it was worse back in the day. On tonight's show, we go back to 1959 and hear about what Gilbert, the hippopotamus, had to put up with when he arrived in Dublin Zoo. Are hippopotamuses any use? Uh, not from a commercial value, no. I think he's a, a monstrously ugly beast myself. Is it normal for them to have those queer pink patches around their ears? Yes, it is. That's quite normal. Yeah, that is desperate reporting, <laughs> I've got to say. And, and also the body shaming and yeah. looks shaming of, of the fabulous hippo. I'm, I'm raging. We get an insight into what girls thought about their futures from this early 1970s RTE documentary. We asked a group of girls what kind of work they expected to do later on. After after I leave school, to get a job just to earn my living for a while, and then if I get married, I don't think I'll work all that much after that. And one family talk about their housing needs back in 1971. We visited a family of seven who live in two rooms in the centre of Dublin. We talked to the mother and her little son about their idea of a home. Well, I just want an extra bedroom. Flat will do. A nice house. Have a back garden and all. Have rabbits. Yeah, would you like rabbits? Yeah, and a dog. Yeah, and? That's all. I wouldn't like a cat. I'll go for it. Why? They go for you? Yeah. But first up tonight, this is a newsreel from 1959. This report is about the arrival of Gilbert the Hippopotamus at Dublin Zoo. Dublin Zoo has been around for nearly 190 years and has been renowned for hosting a vast array of wildlife from lions to zebras. They were still building their collection back in 1959 and this is a very bemused report about the arrival of Gilbert. I hope he didn't hear what they had to say about him. Let's have a listen. And about that hippopotamus at the zoo, we'd heard a lot about Gilbert the hippo and we thought that maybe he could be persuaded to say hello to you just like Charlton Heston did. Well, he wouldn't. He just stayed underwater and blew bubbles. Gilbert's the first hippo ever actually to be in Ireland, though some friends of mine swear they've seen them at one time or another on bedposts or up in trees or something. Anyhow, the zoo were pleased with him, as Moya Nugent found when she talked with the superintendent, Terence Murphy. Well, now that he's here, what do you think of him? Well, I think he's a very attractive little animal. Little animal? Well, he's about a ton, of course, at the present moment, but he will grow up to two, maybe three, and up to four tons they grow, especially a male like this. They're usually a large animal. And you're quite satisfied with him? Yes, and he's settling down very well now. He seems to have a great public appeal. There's a tremendous crowd here today, anxious to see him. I saw him eyeing the crowds in a rather dubious sort of way, and he wouldn't charge, would you? No, he wouldn't charge, but he's just... Uh, unsettled in his new quarters, but a day or two and he'll settle down quite well and be very happy, I think. What do you plan to feed him on? Well, he's fed on, he's entirely a vegetarian, and he's fed on grains, uh, maize, root vegetables, greens, grass, hay. And this pool that he's in now, he's only 18 months at the moment. Yes, and he'll grow up possibly to about 12 up maybe 14 feet long. Well, will you now, have to keep extending the pool? No, this is only for his winter quarters. We're at the moment building an outdoor paddock with a much bigger pool for him. But this, uh, the space that he has now is quite ample for even an adult hippo. And will he be able to stand the Irish summer in the outdoors? He will, yes. He's been born in Whipsnade and uh, the climate over there I think is harder than our own. Are hippopotamuses any use? Uh, not from a commercial value, no. They are quite valuable from a zoological point of view. This one is nearly, well, roughly a thousand pounds, but was made possible by the sale of our giraffe, which we made a little on the deal in, actually. Mm -hmm. I think he's a, a monstrously ugly beast myself. Is it normal for them to have those queer pink patches around their ears? Yes, it is. That's quite normal. Yeah. He seemed to spend an awful long time under the water. Yes, they spend two, three, maybe four minutes underneath the water at a time. They like water, they're normally in the water all the time. They live in the rivers and they only come out in the evening time as a rule to graze. Gilbert, lucky fellow, has his own private paddock and star swimming pool attached. In five years or so, maybe he'll meet a girl hippo and start a little family. In the meanwhile, he's a big success, especially with the youngsters. Well, what do you think of him? Uh, it's it's a queer looking uh, an, uh, thing and it looks like a, it has a pig's head, something, something like a pig's head on it. Uh, 
pig head? Yes, ma'am. And do you like the look of them? No. Why? What's wrong with them? He looks terrible. Let's bring in our Sure Twas Better panel of actress and living legend Pauline McGlynn, complete Ashling author Emer McLeisett, and writer Jules Call. I have a feeling they're going to be in Gilbert's corner on this one. Oh, poor Gilbert. 18 months old. I know. Monstrously ugly. Oh. Is he any use? I, yeah, that is desperate reporting, <laughs> I've got to say. And and also the body shaming and yeah. looks shaming of, of the fabulous hippo. I'm, I'm raging. I'm raging Also, after when that. they said um, he wouldn't charge at us, would he? Are they not supposed to be one of the most dangerous animals on earth? <laughs> yeah. Oh my oh, well, God. Yeah. I love the way they sold the giraffe to get him though and made a bit of a profit. Know, the poor oh, giraffe isn't it fascinating? <laughs> yeah. We'll hear more newsreel footage from Dublin Zoo later and if the chaps from the city newsreel found it hard to get their heads around seeing a hippo for the first time, tune in later when they encounter kangaroos in the flesh. OK, time for a fascinating documentary now from the early 1970s which appeared on RT Radio. It's a series about education and these secondary school students were asked what they thought lay ahead of them in the future. We asked a group of girls what kind of work they expected to do later on. After after I leave school, to get a job just to earn my living for a while, and then if I get married, I don't think I'll work all that much after that. Um, if I have children, I won't be working there. But I suppose after that I might get a part-time job or something. I don't believe in the family unit, or I don't believe in one parent staying at home reminding the kids all the time. So I wouldn't get married. I don't like children, so I wouldn't have any children. So what else is there? I'd work. Why don't you believe in the family? Because it's based on sort of um, the man as out working all the time. I don't believe two people can live together all the time. You know, again, I don't believe people can live together for, let's say, 50 years. Same people, I don't believe it. It's generally assumed, I think, that women are natural mothers. I don't think that's true. I mean, there's loads of women who don't have children or loads of women who have kids and beat them up. I mean, people don't say men are natural fathers. If a man doesn't choose to have children, people don't start giving out to them for not having children. Now, do you expect to work? I do, yeah. Long? I do, yeah. I don't think I'll get married either. I'll most likely, if I do find a nice fella, I live with him until I get to him. <laughs> But I don't believe that the man should be the breadwinner all the time and that the woman should, like, if I did work, I wouldn't sort of race home to have his dinner ready. I mean, he'd have mine or else I would both take it in turns. Well, I'd like the experience of having children and living in a home life for a while, but I wouldn't like to make it the rest of my life. I'd rather work. I don't agree with home, like, home life. I don't see how a man and a woman sort of have to stay with each other for the rest of their lives and sort of be chastised if you go out with another man for a meal or something like that, be given out to... And it can break up marriages and it's very hard for children and that, so I'd rather go on working. I wouldn't mind having children. Quite frightening, but I'd rather adopt than that because there's too many children in this world who haven't got parents and that. Um, well, I want to be a vet when I leave school, but I find that a lot of people are discouraging me because they think I'm just wasting seven years of my life and then I'm going to just go and get married. You know, a lot of people are saying to me, why can't you be a veterinary assistant? But I don't want to be. I want to be a vet. And then they say some of the work is very heavy, you know, but I could have a male assistant and I'd be the vet myself. I don't want to be just an assistant. And you think you'll be well able for it? Yeah. Well, as well able as a man. We'll be back again next week with another programme. So, until then, goodbye. Succeed at last. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's mad to listen to that. That isn't was it? fascinating, yeah. wasn't it? Unbelievable. It still blows oh. my mind that back in the day, if you got married or you were having a child, that's it. End of work for you. Like my mum did it. My mum was a film editor here in RTE and she decided to get married. That was it. The job goes and she became a housewife and mother to children. Mm. I, I just can't even believe that that was a reality. Yeah. I, I was kind of heartened yeah. to hear yeah. the progressive attitudes of a lot of those girls who mm. said they didn't want to get married. But it was kind of sad as well to hear how defensive they were about it.
about it. Like they were, you know, really saying something that was out of the norm and they were going to be told off about it. Um, like the girl with the dream of being a vet and people telling you, you're wasting your life, yeah. you're wasting your time, you'll do the seven years, but inevitably yeah. that'll be, you know, not worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, imagine. Um, really fascinating. Um, and also their attitudes to marriage. One of them was very harsh on, on marriage, wasn't she? She was. Um, People uh, can't live together. as a thing. Yes. Yeah, and that's that. And uh, fascinating to hear one, or, you know, the, their idea that um, one girl, that um, there were too many children in the world, so she'd be adopting. Um, fascinating. Really, yeah. really fascinating. We lost Sinead O'Connor in July. She made her television debut on The Late Late Show with Gay Byrne in 1988 at the age of 21. She performed the track Mandinka from her debut record and then sat down with Gay Byrne for this discussion. We're all looking at you, Sinead, out there on television and they're saying, Mother of God, what did she do with our head? Isn't that a disgrace? I hope my daughter wouldn't turn out like that. Isn't that what you're saying? Yes, you are already. You are. How are you then? Well you done so you? far. Now, from Glenagiri, you were you were a difficult child, Sinead O'Connor. Oh, you were know. difficult growing up. You went through a lot of schools, did you not? I think quite a few at the expense of my father. <laughs> How many schools did you go through and why? Um, God, I, th- I think, I don't know how many, Dad, about five, five or six. How many schools did she go through? I'd say no more than the five or six. Five or six. <laughs> it's a bit exaggerated, actually. That's in one year, of course. <laughs> and here's another Late Late Show appearance by Sinead O'Connor in 1990. She's been quizzed about her refusal to allow the American national anthem to be played before her concert in New Jersey. This triggered a ban on her music from several radio stations in New York. I'm not a conformist on any level, you know what I mean? Tell me about this row about the national anthem. Were you right to get into that? I don't think it was a situation of being wrong or right. It was a situation of I acted at the time in the way that I felt uh, would be most true to myself. Uh, I didn't mean to offend anybody. I I did it because um, I have a huge problem with the censorship movement that's happening in America at the moment. It has terrible implications. Uh, The idea that artists, uh, you know, painters, photographers, musicians, poets and people like that are being told what they may and may not say and what they may and may not write about. Where's that happening? In America. Uh, In particular among the uh, black community it's happening. So I have uh, two problems with it. First of all, that I don't think censorship should happen at all to anybody. But secondly, I think that a lot of the time there's a lot of white artists who are very offensive as well uh, and they don't get censored. So it leaves me thinking that it's a slightly racist problem as well. So, you know, if it happened now, I might have reacted in a different way. You know what I mean? I didn't realise that people would take such offence to it and because I didn't mean offence, you know what I mean? The problem is that a lot of people would say, well, you didn't, you did not not take the money. You know, if they asked me for the money, I would gladly have given it to them. You would? You would? All the money? <clears throat> Absolutely. I don't perform or make records or do anything in order to make money. It's not the thing that I hold most important in my life. What a woman. What a woman. It's it's yeah. sad that the it takes courage. Yeah, it mm. takes the death of somebody like Sinead O'Connor for us to really reflect on how much she did and how much work she did when I think previously mm-hmm. she was often remembered for how difficult she was. Mm. But in fact she was incredibly yeah. brave to Incredible, talk about yeah. what she spoke mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And I mean I guess you know one of the I wish it had happened sooner obviously but um, the music you know when we're hearing now the one wonderful uh, music that she made including Black Boys on, on Mopeds, um, Troy you know all of these tracks you realise they and her work um, as a body of work is just extraordinary um, and it does encapsulate everything she was doing as well as a person um, just you know shining a light on on what's wrong in the world yeah. an extraordinary woman She was part of so many important movements in Ireland she was a voice behind so many important movements and I think you know more recently when she was asked about that famous incident of her ripping up the photo of the Pope on SNL and she said she she was glad she did it because it put her back into being a protest singer rather than a pop singer which was what she actually was mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people would have just mm-hmm. taken her as you know this very beautiful woman who sang a Prince song and that was it whereas she was so much more than that No she was the definition of a true artist Yeah In every sense For
We're fans of fly-on-the-wall documentaries on this series. Here we have a revealing documentary from Radio 1 about the inner workings of Trinity College Dublin in the 1970s. We hear the interviewer talking here to a member of staff called Maureen. The staff, the staff in lecturers, general. The lecturers. The oh, the lecturers. Well, well, I find them quite nice. Some of them now. Some of them can be a bit toffy-nosed, all right. But and the, the majority of them are great. And they pleasant people to work very with. Very pleasant and very homely. And will some uh, most of them will stop and talk to you and have a chat with you and have a laugh with you. And for that, again, you get some of them that wouldn't be at the time of the day, but that's do, it. Do you think that academics tend to live in a world of their own? Some of them. Some of them, yes. I mean, intellectually or emotionally or... Are they just very shy people, a lot of them? Well, it'd be very hard to, for me to know that. I'd say it's more intellectually they are. It's sort of cut off. Cut off from the outside world. Do you find them uh, hard to have a conversation with? Well, the majority that I speak to, I always have a a laugh and a joke with. But some of them would would just bid you the time of the day and continue walking, would never... And they could do that for years? Yes. Do you know other parts of the college well? Yes. Which parts? Mainly the front part, up around uh, the arts building, the main square. Do you like it as a college? I love the buildings some fabulous buildings in college and the grounds are magnificent. It's a pleasant place to work in. Very pleasant. Particularly walking across the front square on this early in the morning when there's not a soul about. It's very, very peaceful and it's like a dream walking through early morning. Uh, what time in the morning do the cleaning people come in at? Some of them come in at half five, some of them come in at six to seven. Seven is the latest. There's a sense of a, a tourist industry in the college. I think for the first time, uh, very strongly. Would you agree with that? Very, very strongly, because you can co- see them coming through Nassau Street Gate any morning from half nine onwards up to six in the evening. Groups and groups of visitors. So that hundreds of people could pass through here every day? Hundreds, you name it, we have it. Yeah. <laughs> have to be, be observant to watch, to make sure there's no pickpockets coming in and that they ask us the way to the bus station or the tourist information on O'Connell Street or Grafton Street. Other than that, it's more like in... During the summer, it's more of an in- information for tourists. So, at the reception desk. People could actually wander in here and ask you questions about any part of Dublin. Oh yes, they do. And do you help them? Oh yes, to the best of my knowledge, anyway, and my ability. And if I don't know, I'll seek somebody out who can help me. What do you think of the actual location of Trinity, Maureen? It's it's right in the heart of Dublin, isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. It couldn't be planted anywhere better. Right in the dead centre of the city. Uh, what does that mean to you? That, does it mean that Trinity is Dublin? That Dublin is Trinity? Or what, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Well, I remember years ago passing O'Connor, um, Trinity, the main gates with my father. And I, I, I said to him, Hey, Dad, what's that over there? And he said, That's Trinity College. And I remember one time he brought me in to see the Book of Kells. And he said, Well, Maureen, Trinity College is not for air class. But if he was alive today to know that I was broken in Trinity and how the situation has changed over the years, he wouldn't believe it. It's time to find out what the Sure Twas Better panel of Pauline, Jules and Emer think of that Trinity College documentary featuring Maureen. By the way, contact me by emailing sure at rte.ie if you recognise anybody from any of these clips. She sounds like one of the greatest assets Trinity could have ever had. Absolutely. What a woman. She's cleaning. She's on security yeah. looking out for pickpockets. She's an information guy. She's amazing. Yeah. I love uh, documentaries about, you know, the, um, the workings of somewhere you know I mean and obviously she and all of the other cleaners they were the ones keeping the whole the whole ship um, you know sailing um, mm. they you know everything would have ground to a halt without them mm. I, I think it's fascinating and also the idea the the, the heartbreak of this is not for our yeah. class yeah. Um, you know that her father said that to her that's that's heartbreaking I hope that that's changed yeah and she was well able for, for the interviewer who I feel like I would have asked her like have you what's the best gossip you have what have you heard behind the scenes and also he was talking down to her a little bit there was a little bit of oh would they talk to the likes of you now and ask you questions which I thought was a little bit unfortunate but she she, she's brilliant Mm -hmm. she's a great person wonderful okay well we'll be continuing with this subject after the commercial break 
43, 44... Spread 40, margarine and you can count on around 50 calories. 48, 49... Spread butter and again you can count on around 50 calories. But spread new Slimsia low-fat spread and you can count on... 19, 20, 21... Only 25 calories. New Slimsia low-fat spread contains only half the calories of margarine or butter. Slimsia tastes delicious, spreads beautifully, but you don't. New Slimsia low-fat spread. Now people who count calories... 24, 25... ...can stop halfway. Tesco introduced downright prices and more. Like Tesco hot dogs, 25% extra free, 29 and a half pence. Tesco vanilla ice cream, special price, one litre, 69 pence. Jury's Cabaret, sparkling entertainment where Dublin nights come to life with a full night's family entertainment in a warm and friendly atmosphere with service to match. Join us for an excellent five-course dinner and cabaret or simply enjoy some fine entertainment. They could, but they'd be all closed now. <laughs> the choice is entirely yours. Jury's Cabaret, for a rare old time. Right it down. Good one. A gentle reminder, did you get your set of birthday cards, mass cards and notelets from the disabled artists? If you did, they would like to give you a gentle reminder to send your remittance now to Disabled Artists Association, 2 Bridge Street, Cork. Here's a quick message from Maxall for motorists with no time on their hands. Free time from Maxall. Free time from Maxall. The sound of Fill up at your Max All station now. Collect Max All tokens. Get a superb multifunction ladies or gents digital watch absolutely free. Details where you see the watch off or sign. The RTE Archives is currently digitising its audio archive, meaning thousands of new programmes are becoming digitally available. This valuable RTE material is being safeguarded and made accessible for future use. Some of this content has not been heard since its original broadcast, or indeed not at all. It's time to unleash Frankie Byrne once again. As regular listeners to Church Was Better are aware, several new episodes of Dear Frankie have resurfaced in the digitising of the archive. Dear Frankie, for the Uninitiated was a radio programme hosted by Agony Aunt Frankie Byrne who hosted the weekly show for 22 years on RTE Radio and was attracting up to 100 letters a week at its peak. Let's have a listen. This is Frankie Byrne coming to you on RTE Radio 1 with another edition of Woman's Page a programme for maybe about you. Now the problems I'll be discussing today may not be yours but they could be someday. At all events, Woman's Page draws its material from the lives and events of real people. And it comes to you now with the compliments of Jacobs, the biscuit makers. Dear Frankie, I'm 22 and for the past eight months I've been going out with a very nice boy of my own age. Now, we get on great together. We've talked of getting married one day. Not yet, though. And he says I'm the only one for him. Frankie, you may wonder what my problem is. Well, it's this. Having made all those declarations of love and intent, he gets very moody, and he doesn't make a date for the next night. And then when we meet again, he plays it very cool with me. And sometimes he even breaks dates. And then, out of the blue, he's all over me again. What do you think of this situation? Do you think he's interested in me? Or is he just playing around? You're sincerely, Greta. Well, Greta, this is not the first time I've received a letter like this, almost exactly like this in every detail. Some young girl finds herself taken up and thrown aside and picked up again like a toy. And always the uppermost thought in her mind is, is this boy interested or is he just playing around? Now, it seems to me that by changing her tactics slightly, this girl could free herself from all that unhappiness and uncertainty by daring to ask herself this question. Am I really interested in this immature boy who hasn't even got the sensitivity to realise that I'm a human being and not some lifelike model sent by Providence to satisfy his emotional whims? But no, always they search their own hearts and minds trying to find out where the fault lies. And I simply can't tell them that there's no fault involved, that they are just victims of foolishness, their own and the boys. 
It's sad that they should allow themselves to be treated in this way, because unhappiness, if we must suffer it, and we must suffer it at times, it should spring from some deeper source than the trivial impulses of some sub-adult youth and a girl's confused desire to please him. Now, in saying this, I suppose I'll be accused of being harsh or cynical. Here's a girl anxious, as most girls are, to achieve a significant relationship in their lives. Now, I think that's the trouble with girls. They're too earnest, and I have to say this, most times in too much of a hurry to establish this all-important relationship. This particular girl has the bad luck to meet a boy who simply doesn't yet know the meaning of human relationships. He thinks it perfectly reasonable to peddle a line of romantic conversation to a willing listener whenever the notion takes him. What I would say to this girl is that any man who can behave as this one has done really is not worth the trouble she's taking. If he's not interested seven days a week, well, he's not interested. Sweet talk about marriage, someday, may be a nice way to pass an evening. But it's no substitute for the straight, old-fashioned question, will you marry me? In spite of all his big talk, he's really only a small fish. Now, if I were this girl, I'd throw him back and hook him again when he's grown up a bit. Or better still, I think I'd look round for a better catch. Let's hear now from the Sure Twas Better panel of Pauline, Jules and Emer about Frankie's distinctly maritime themed advice tonight. Sage advice there from Frankie. Well, do you know, she's she's um, bang on, isn't she? <laughs> she? Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, about the sub adult youth and um, uh, waiting for him to grow up um, <laughs> if he ever does. I think that's, yeah, she she really got to the, the nub of the problem there and, and solved it, didn't she? she Very did. good advice. Very good. I love the whole analogy okay. about him being a small fish. Throw him back in and maybe hook him again when he's grown up a bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> She's brilliant, isn't she? I love her. Ah, look, it's it's a shame she's not still um, giving out her no-nonsense advice. Yeah, we could it? do with this. Um, because that's, it's wonderful, yeah. I mean, can you imagine a teenager now writing to Frankie and her harsh advice? How would they take it? What do you think would happen? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I still think that there'd be space for it, wouldn't there? Um, you know, uh, it's uh, she's kind of like a radiotherapist, isn't she? Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, so solving the problems and and whatnot. I, I think it could still work today. Her advice wouldn't always be regarded as 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 good as it is, I suppose. Um, but I, I think she could succeed. Yeah, I mean, like good advice. <laughs> Advice is good advice. I could see TikTok, you know, Frankie going viral with all her clips every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. TikTok Frankie indeed. Terrifying. Now, we're scrolling forward to 1984. And as Frankie has been alluding to, the dating scene was pretty wild in Ireland back in the day. This is a clip from the Women Today programme about a woman who was a detective. And she really illustrates the pearls and pitfalls of relationships in 1980s Ireland. Think shotguns, bigamy and some extreme paranoia. Here we go. The image of the private detective is one of cool, fearless men. They are usually hard drinking, hard living and wisecracking. But the reality is much different. Sandra Mara has been a private investigator for 15 years. She started off working for her father's firm of investigators. Now, their suspicions usually well-founded if somebody suspects that either their husband or wife is having an extramarital affair. In the majority of cases, although not always, um, on a number of occasions we've had people who have been adamant that their husband or wife has been having an affair when it has quite definitely not been the case. And they've come back and back on numbers of occasions throughout the year and there's been no possibility that the person involved. One instance the person was working and was observed to be working at every time that the wife was insistent that he had was having an affair. Um, another person had to be actually taken along on an observation and shown that the wife was going to church every night and meeting nobody and he still was unconvinced. But in these instances I think it's, it's come to the stage that they really it's medical advice that they need. And would you would you be able to tell the person that? Or? Well we can refer them but very often they don't want to know you know I mean at that stage it's probably too far and um, they just believe that it's conspiracy against them generally but certainly medical advice is what we would recommend in that mm. instance. You told me earlier that quite a lot of um, women who are going out with men have, are coming to you to have those men checked out because they suspect that they might be married. Yes, in recent years that seems to have become um, the thing to do because a few years ago you would get maybe one or two cases of a single girl coming 
to check out about her boyfriend. Now, uh, every week, there's two or three girls checking out on uh, somebody that they maybe have been going with for two or three years and they're still not aware of their background. They believe them to be single or they hope they're single, but unfortunately, in quite a large proportion of cases, they turn out to be married with families and they're living two separate lives. Have you got into any dicey situations or can you remember? Well, from time to time, yes. Yes, I mean, they're they're bound to occur over the years. But um, so far, so good. I've been lucky enough to get out of them again. Can you tell me of any of them? Um, Well, in some situations, uh, in a matrimonial matter, which you don't expect these things to happen in that, it'd be something of a more serious nature you would expect. Um, Recently, a wife unfortunately decided to tell her husband right in the middle of the investigation and he came out with a shotgun. To, to say, where were you but, outside in the car? Um, it was actually while we were yeah, doing the job. and um, But you know, you can't account for people and if they lose their temper in a so heated argument. How did you, how they, you, did you know, cope with that? Well, we were lucky enough to get out of that situation, but there are you know, several times you get into these scrapes. But as I say, so far, I've been lucky enough to get out again. <laughs> This next clip shines a light on one of Ireland's little-known refugee crises. This was in 1969 when Northern Nationalists were forced to flee south from pogroms in the north. Catholics generally fled across the border to the Republic, while Protestants fled to East Belfast. The Irish Defence Forces set up refugee camps in the Republic and, at one point, Gormanstown Refugee Camp held 6,000 refugees from Northern Ireland. Well, I got a, a message from Kathleen Moynihan of Mullingar saying that they had collected money there and had sent up a centre and that those people coming that night from uh, Belfast and they'd be in here on the 8 o'clock train. I went up to the station at 7 o'clock and waited and these people, there were 30 to come but instead of that there were 50 and one woman in a very bad condition and her husband was blind and she was expecting a baby and they got her as far as Mullingar and when she got there the child was born. We give them meals here and the station master helped us and all the workmen that were on the platform workers who were there on the platform give every assistance they could and they opened up the restaurant and made sandwiches and the men themselves who were there on the platform put some money together and went out and got a case of milk and fed the babies. There were lots of babies there, weren't there? There were an awful lot of babies there, yes. The people must have been in a state of terror, weren't they? They were in an absolute state of terror because one man came down the platform with a funny kind of a hat on him. I don't know who he was, but when he came down, one child went into hysterics because she thought that he was a beast special. We're from Belfast and I came from Belfast to Dublin and we're a couple of hours in Dublin and we moved into here and we're riddled out the night before, we're riddled all around, it was the first night they opened fire, they riddled all around the whole place. That was the night the wee child was killed and they never give over a riddle until 8 o'clock the next morning. They murdering B-specials that the English brought in to the poor people that had nothing to defend themselves back with. They riddled the fellas down like dogs on the Falls Road and I don't know, it's the Chester Clark and, and Mr Craig and Mr Porter if their conscience doesn't check them going to bed at night, I don't know what kind of men they are. For to, to lie in their bed and think that they sent a, a murdering squad in till families that, that women and children were murdered and people co- were terrorised. They couldn't get out of the country quick enough. Their homes were burned. They, they were afraid of getting shot. They couldn't even stay. I know I was one couldn't stay that morning to take a cup of tea. For a, a, I couldn't even make a cup of tea. My nerves was that much strong. We're children. When we heard that she was killed, it was enough when they were out to murder children. And, and wouldn't even let the ambulance in to lift the chain. They wouldn't let the ambulance in their falls road. They left the wounded. They kept the ambulance back from lifting the wounded. They lay there till the next morning. The wounded on the falls road. That's all I have. There's ten of us here today. No, no, I don't know nothing about my husband and I have a sister and seven children down in Belfast that we know nothing about and a brother in Belfast that we haven't heard tell from we came here. Oh, my God. 
I'd I have my throat listening no to that. idea about this situation. Yeah, never heard of it before. I, I feel really ignorant. Um, I, I didn't know that there were refugees coming from, from Northern Ireland in, in 1969. Extraordinary. Unbelievable. The harshness of it, like, is just unbelievable to listen to. And, but the, the kindness as well at the same time, that they were met with um, such care and generosity of looking after the children. And wow, and you think of, yeah. like, the, the refugees in, coming from Ukraine and how we're, we're you know we're still looking after them the, the, the Irish people are very generous and uh, yeah mm-hmm. my god that was t- really tough to listen to wasn't it the terror in her voice and they wouldn't let the ambulance through I yeah. mean it's just it's yeah, unimaginable it's, yeah and I mean to think that you know that situation has only some years ago been resolved you know with the um, if if you could say it, it has been resolved you know by the, uh, after the Good Friday Agreement but you know um, in our lifetime I, imagine there were refugees from our own island yeah coming south you know for refuge uh, extraordinary this is a programme now from 1973 about the history of Ireland Irish travellers. I found this out a long time ago, you know, that people, no matter how much you try to be good, they still throw the scourge in you, you know, that you really cannot trust them, you know. Dear Yves, that is the voice of young travelling woman named Anne and she lives with her husband and four children on in sight in the west of Ireland. The county council gave them a caravan but they find it very cold, particularly in winter, so they sleep in it and by day they live in a hut made by Anne's husband. When we met them one day in April that was in the caravan, we found it very cold indeed and when we went back to our hotel the first thing we asked for was a hot drink to warm us up. The caravan is divided into uh, a part to live in and a part to sleep in, though there is no partition at all. It is clean and neat and it's nicely decorated with artificial flowers and little holy pictures. These programmes are about Anne's people, the travellers, as they like to call themselves. We all know they're in the process of being resettled and that there are many problems, social and educational and many others. But our programmes are really not about these and we won't attempt to offer any solutions. What we are doing is really trying to describe them as a people, to examine their way of life and their customs and their traditions and maybe to find out why they are on the road at all. To begin, there aren't that many of them, only about 7,500 according to the last census. We're real Irish people. We, were, we didn't stray from no foreign countries at all. We originated here from the West of Ireland here. And I mean, that's the problem of our life. But just as it was somewhere staying in is that we should be travelling, it'll, it came to the end that now they're going to do something with us, thanks be to God. Now that was Larry Ward. Travellers were formally recognised as an ethnic group back in 2017 after decades of campaigning by traveller activists. Let's hear the reaction of Pauline, Jules and Emer to the last clip. Um, it's, it's such a harsh life, isn't it? That um, they, I think, still live, the, the travellers, and they're so misunderstood mm. also. I mean, there's a lot of prejudice um, still there, even though that was quite a, obviously a, a sympathetic um, look at, you know, their lives and and you know the conditions um in which they lived um which i don't think have changed that much over the years um sadly um uh, you know that yeah, clip is from 1973 I, that's exactly 50 years ago and it's i think it's really interesting to hear somebody uh, interviewing um uh, with compassion and going we would like to yes. discover she even said um why they're on the road at all like they were really willing and open to understand yeah. their culture and 50 years on yeah. the traveling community still have huge trouble being accepted within Ireland. Yeah. You could be making that same documentary, couldn't you? You right could. Now. You could be making that same documentary in 2023, exactly 50 years on, five decades. Like that's, that's, whoa. This is a disturbing clip from much later in the 1990s, which featured a dispute in Glenamady. It's taken here from the playback programme with Ruth Buchanan. But what's a store on playback now? Two lots of people at loggerheads. First, the Glenamady story, the townspeople versus the travelling people. John Egan reported for The Pat Kenny Show. Tensions were running high in the East Galway town of Glenamady for a second night running last night. On Monday, a crowd of about 200 people had gathered in the town square and smashed 
smashed windows and overturned vans belonging to travellers who were drinking in the Four Roads pub. Last night at around 9 o'clock, about 100 people were again gathered and they were clearly annoyed that some travellers were still continuing to frequent the Four Roads. The people of the town have been abused, something absolutely shocking for the last uh, probably 16 months. 16 months or so. And the people are fed up to hell with it now. And um, the people are here to, uh, you know, to, uh, to protest and uh, basically to have it well known that they want the place cleaned up. But what's happening tonight? There's a couple of people in that pub drinking. They're not disturbing anybody, and yet there's still maybe a hundred people here. The lads are fed and up with it. And to tolerate it. And to walk tolerate it. No. And we'll be here tomorrow night. And we'll be here the night after that. And the night after that. And the night after that till every one of them. Till that place is closed. And every traveller And every traveller out, out of this town. And never, <laughs> ever... Talk to me for a sec. Sorry, I didn't get your name. It's Inspector Jim Bradbury. So, what's the story you're now tonight? Which I mean, you can see the story for yourself, John. I mean, we're, we, as I said, we have enough personnel here to keep the law, and we're going to keep it. I hear you have three guards in the town. Well, no. I can guarantee you that the amount of guards, we have enough of guards to keep the law. Is it three guards you have in the town? I'm not going to give you the number of guards we have in the town. No, but it, you're wrong if you say it's three. Later still, the ugliest scene of the evening developed as a traveller attempted to leave the town in his van. He halted on a number of occasions to warn the crowd not to bang on the sides of his van. What happened? He stopped. He stopped at the square. He defied the locals, ran in at the end, and all I saw was a man trying to beat, trying to beat the, tra the driver of the car. That's what I saw because I was down talking to somebody else. Ooh, that was tough listening. That is one, yeah, that is one of the scariest things I've ever heard. Mm. Um, oh, wow. It, um, you know, yeah. Just I pure so intimidation tactics. Like, just to think mm. that they could take action through that that format mm. is just, wow, that's the 90s. Yeah, and I, and, and again, that would could happen today. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the amount of prejudice and is still out there. Very, very scary. What does it mean to have a home? This was explored in this thought-provoking programme from 1971. Well, what comes out of that is that a home can exist apart from houses, flats or any other living place and it's essentially about people. Of course, nobody would suggest for a moment that people shouldn't have a decent place to live and indeed where you live can affect your idea of a home. For example, we visited a family of seven who live in two rooms in the centre of Dublin. We talked to the mother and her little son about their idea of a home. Well, I just want an extra bedroom. Flats will do. A nice house. Have a back garden and all. Have rabbits. Yeah, would you like rabbits? Yeah, and a dog. Yeah, and? That's all. I wouldn't like a cat. They'll go for you. Why? They go for you? Yeah, I'm oh, afraid. They yeah. only like little pups. <laughs> When you think that the home is the basic unit of society, and when you think that the quality of life in a country depends on the quality of each home, it's amazing to think that we train for every other job and that scarcely any men and women are trained for homemaking. And we're bogged down by unreal notions that come from magazines and advertising, among other things. So what in fact happens is that you work it out as you go along. <laughs> Oh, wasn't that little fella only gorgeous? He wanted the puppy, not a cat yeah. though. They go yeah, for you. Yeah, they go for you. <laughs> uh, it's it's so poignant, isn't it? Because, mm. I mean, you know, we have such a huge problem with homelessness mm. still. Um, and, you know, to hear people's rather simple needs, um, you know, just is it so much to ask that you could have a garden, you know, mm. to um, to enjoy. Uh, I found that really poignant. Yeah, the most basic human sad. needs, just a home to live in. And yeah. when you think of, yeah, the housing yeah. crisis, you think of the homelessness crisis and the amount of children that need that, that most basic thing in life, just a home, a simple yeah. home. 
I did promise you another clip from those city newsreel people from the 1950s. Here's a report about their trip to Dublin Zoo after encountering some kangaroos. And now let's hear from three visitors who've just arrived in Dublin from Australia. And I'm sure you'll be very glad to make their acquaintance. They were interviewed the other day by Moya Nugent. They've come a long distance and expect to be here for quite a while. When asked what they thought about Ireland, they replied... Now, now, come, come, we're not as bad as all that. This is the voice of one of the zoo's latest arrivals, three giant grey Australian kangaroos. And although Dublin has had no kangaroos for the last 20 years, their appearance will be quite familiar and reminiscent to most people, for they look like enormous four feet tall mice. Their fur is like a brown powder puff, and being strangers to the place, they were quivering with nerves. The male leaped around his sleeping quarters, growling when I went in. And I was terrified in case he'd got me with a sweep of his hind paw, which flourished a nine-inch claw. As it was holiday time for the zoological brass hats up in the park, I had the unusual experience of being taken around by the zoo accountant, Mr Ned Stringer. These fellows don't seem to be moving very quickly. Not at the moment, but they can certainly move very quickly. If they were hunted, they could take a leap as much as 26 feet in length. So and how high can they jump? Well, I believe that a kangaroo has jumped as high as nine feet. Well, does that present any problems in housing here for you? Well, I sh hardly should imagine that, because unless hunted, and they will not be hunted here. Yeah. They wouldn't suddenly take a desire to see freedom again and leap over this iron railing. Well, you hope not. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. And Mr. John O'Connor here is the keeper Keep. of the kangaroos. That's right, yes. And you're the keeper of the elephants too, aren't you? I'm assistant keeper of the elephants. <laughs> and which do you prefer, the kangaroos or the elephants? Oh, the elephants, naturally. Why? Well, the elephants are, it's hard to describe it. You either like one, you like some animals more than you do others, such as I don't like reptiles. Oh, and have you any special feeding problems with your three new arrivals? Oh no, they, they all eat hay and grass, and bread, and cabbage and carrots, vegetables. And finally, here are some more biographical details of the kangaroo. When born, they are the size of a bumblebee. They live and go for walks in mummy's pouch because daddy hasn't got one. Mummy does all the work. Their only two commercial uses are as the basis of a rather good soup, kangaroo tail and as professional boxers. I don't think our zoo will use them in either capacity, but they do plan to exhibit them in a paddock where they can be watched playing and making their own happy little noises. Okay, Pauline, Jules and Emer, we've really covered a multitude on tonight's programme, from bemused kangaroos to insulted hippopotamuses, as well as disturbing discrimination and unknown refugee crises from the past. The big question is, was it better or was it worse back in the day? What do you think, folks? I'm thinking that things are better now um, because, you know, there were so many things that were just so sad um, in uh, that we've just listened to, you know, um, the treatment of, of Gilbert the Hippo. Mm, um, in uh, particular. That, you know, yeah, uh, we wasn't happy with that. I mean, to hear girls talking about their futures and what they wanted, I mean, it was a, a hopeful thing, certainly, but I, I think things have improved now. But, you know, um, for travellers, things are just as bad. And, and you know, the home situation, I, I just think... Things on on the basis of what we just listened to were worse then than they are today. Yeah, and how many things have improved when you think about that um, lady who who is the cleaning lady in Trinity College and how now anybody mm. can go to to college no matter whether it's Trinity or whatever it yes. is. Uh, also, Dublin Zoo yeah. still one of the best days out, and it's always celebrated when there's a oh. new elephant or a new baby born, and everybody tries yes. to name it, and you know it's always celebrated, which is wonderful. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, things have true. improved. It is one of the the best zoos I think in the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. even, whether or not you agree with Zeus. I'll tell you what the, the only thing that would you know win this being better then um, for me was that Sinead was still with us. Um, this is true. Because we are a good woman down now and that's, that means that today isn't as good as, as say 
you know, um, during the program when, when she spoke. So, mm. uh, you know, other than that, though, I think um, we were better off now. Yep. Well, I'd like to think that if Gilbert the hippopotamus was arriving in Dublin Zoo today, he'd be treated a little bit better and wouldn't be called monstrously ugly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's nice to hear the girls from the 1970s talk about how they don't want to just get married and have children and forsake any career. Um, things have definitely moved on since then. Poor Sinead, obviously. It's very sad that she's not still with us today in 2023. I feel like we're very blessed to have as much information about her as we have and as as much of her kind of talkings and thoughts and art and music and everything else. And um, yeah, I really love that woman from Trinity College as well. I I hope that the staff at Trinity are as as brilliant as as she was. But I, I mean, I think I'd have to say things are a little bit better now than they than they were back in the day, if only that we might treat Gilbert a little bit better in Dublin Zoo. Thanks so much for listening to this current series of Sure It Was Better. You can listen back on the RT Radio app and I hope to talk to you again soon.